0: Hey there, and welcome back to an extremely special episode of A Conversation for One Podcast, the podcast where I discuss horror and sci-fi multimedia, film universes, theme parks, Canadiana, and so much more. Hey everyone, how is it going? Is it going great? Well, that's good to hear. Today I have quite the special treat for you all. It's been a long time and an absolute labor of love. But today we will be discussing perfect horror. Well, perfect horror films. When thinking of perfect horror, it's really easy to think of films you really liked or that were memorable for one reason or another. But if you were to rewatch them, would you find them to be a truly flawless experience? And if so, why? To be perfect is impossible. Sure. But you can find perfect as in perfect to you or for you. And in this episode, the films being discussed are viewed as perfect, like Tip top as films that you enjoy every ounce of that fail to grow stale and and are enjoyable from start to finish every single viewing. I know for me personally, and I will admit this now before we start going in my list of films, there are films that not only do I find perfect, but I also feel are flawlessly executed as well. Like in every single way, legitimately perfect films on top of being perfect horror films. Now, with that being said, let me just clarify what you're about to hear are opinions. And that is very important. Long-winded and passionate opinions. So if you don't want that, then I just want to thank you for the listen (laughs) up until this point. And for those brave enough to indulge me and listen, don't worry. You'll have a handsome payoff at the end. Trust me on that one. It should be noted that there will be massive, massive spoilers ahead, so do not expect any stone potentially unturned plot-wise here, specifically plot-wise, when it comes to any film that may or may not be discussed. So now that you've made your choice, let us begin.
1: Cole, what's wrong? Did
0: you ever talk to your mom about how things are?
1: I don't tell her things. Why not? Because she doesn't look at me like everybody else, and I don't want her to. I don't want her to know.
2: Know what? I see dead people
1: walking around like regular people. I don't see anything. Are you sure they're there? Sometimes you feel it inside, like you're falling down real fast. You ever feel the prickly things on the back of your neck? Yes. That's them.
3: They get mad. It gets cold.
4: How often do you see them?
3: All
0: the time. Starting off this list with a bang is one of those films I feel is not only a perfect horror film, but an absolute master craft, perfectly executed in every way film. And this film is the 1999 worldwide phenomenon, The Sixth Sense. Now hear me out here. Directed by my guilty pleasure director M. Night Shyamalan, this film does everything right from start to finish. The main story's focus is a split between the child psychologist, Dr. Malcolm Crowe, played by Bruce Willis, and Cole Sears. Is it Sears or Spears? I think it's Sears. A young boy, kind of uh, with clairvoyant abilities, played by uh, Haley Joel Osment. Before I get into it, and it really doesn't concern if the film is kind of like perfect or not, it's crazy to note how truly big this film was when it came out. So it was nominated for like a cluster of Academy Awards, which is super, super uncommon for horror films still to this day. And it was the highest grossing horror film, unadjusted for inflation, that's kind of important to mention, until 2017, when it was surpassed by It. That's crazy. From 1999 to 2017, highest grossing horror film. It's it's, it's unreal. So including uh, 1999 to 2017, that's 19 years. So I hope that makes sense. That's a long time for a horror film to remain king of that record, which meant people loved this film. Like, it's not just me. Sure. Like people went in for the quote unquote. I'm using like finger quotes here twist at the end, which was the big deal at the time. But that aside, it was a he- like perfect film. Anyways, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get off track here a sec. So people love this film, which I can totally get behind because there are so many reasons to start the film does something that I absolutely love and can't get enough of. It makes you feel something which is so important it makes you feel something to your core every single time you watch it like every single time you watch it. now not only do you feel it but the feeling and thoughts from the film stay with you and they haunt you much like the ghost that the film focuses on. do you like that one it's a little uh, it's a little film uh, film school for you there. From the ambience of the score and the tonal shifts, and the structure that provide nothing but mood, the sixth sense would be noteworthy without the narrative or the twist as a beautiful art film just in its just on its own. Plot wise, though, there's a lot to love. Right from the very first scenes, you're uncomfortable, you're frightened, and you're very much on board and connected with Bruce Willis's character, which is so important. Uh, I feel for a horror film to make a mark, like it gets you right in it right away, and I think that's huge. A lot of slashers do that, a lot of ghost movies do that, and it's, well, this is a ghost movie. So you have to be connected to the characters in some way, at least. Otherwise, anyone could just be in the film, and what's the point of watching something that you have no stakes in, no ties to, nothing to keep you grounded? Being pulled into a film is essential for a lasting impression, and The Sixth Sense does it wholeheartedly the entire time. So just take note of that, because I'm sure I'm gonna go, I'll go back to that. Uh, or completely drive over, drive over my words and another uh, pick that I make, but that is important. You need stakes, you need to feel grounded, and you need to be connected to the character and to the story. The Sixth Sense, for those who don't know, the main story, uh, as I was saying earlier, basically boils down to this little kid, Cole. He's an outcast amongst his friends, he's plagued with anxiety, and he's constantly seeing ghosts of those who died. That's kind of like the big thing, like, I see that's like the big thing in the film um but yeah that's basically it and Bruce Willis's character is kind of helping him through it kind of walking him through it um I'm sorry if I'm waterboarding you with this if you've already seen the film I am going to go through it a bit I won't do like the big twist even though everyone knows what it is but basically Bruce Willis is walking um I guess his name's Malcolm. Malcolm is walking uh, Cole through why he thinks he feels this way, why he's so anxious. And basically, he kind of like half believes that he sees this, but also, um, so he starts out more of a cynic, and then by the end is more of a believer. And the thing that I always am drawn to, so not only am I attached to the mother-son dynamic um, that Cole and his mom share, that absolutely, uh, like Tony Collette, gets me every time she plays that role perfect and I'm just in love with their character arc um, and she like never loses it on Cole like you know she wants to she comes close but it's just you just those characters feel so goddamn real and so relatable and I'm always pulled into that uh, This it. she acts like how a, a mom a single mother in those in that position would act and I absolutely adore it um, but the thing is is the thing that i always am tied to and i've never been able to shake and this is why i know it's kind of like it's kind of like a shitty reason to say this is a perfect film but i think if a film you can watch it start to finish again and again it's always perfect it always provides the same and it always touches you the exact same to me that resonates a lot and the part that i'm beating around the bush here for is when cole is called to this little girl. So throughout the film, he is seeing, whether it's like former uh, former escaped slaves or just, I don't even know if they were slaves. They might've been freed people, but they were colored people. They're like hanging in the school, I'm pretty sure. It's traumatizing. There's that like um, very stereotypical um, 50s kind of white woman uh, who's got like the rollers in her hair. I could be adding a little bit of details there, but she has like her throat slit, terrifying stuff. But then there's this girl who needs Cole's help she was um, sick, she's recently dead, and she needs help, and Cole gets on the bus, and he goes to her, and he is at the wake, and the scene I'm getting at, like, it, it's a lot, it's a lot, Um, so this girl is sick, and she's never allowed to get better, because her stepmom, or her mom, whatever it is, there's an actual term for this, and it's kind of like um, postpartum. That's it. I was I couldn't think of it. It's similar to postpartum, um, where you like I can't think what the actual term is, um, but there is a psychological term for it. Um, but basically, you feed off of the attention your sick child gets or your injured child gets, so you actually keep inflicting that onto the child, so that you keep getting that attention, and so this girl is never allowed to get better because the mom keeps putting Pine Sol, like cleaning product into her soup. And the girl kind of figures it out, but it's a little too late. And she's always like, this tastes bad, this tastes bad. And the mom's like, keep eating it, keep eating it. And it's the mom who kills her. And it's the way the whole scene is crafted where the dad finds the tape, he watches the tape, he watches it with everyone. And it's just, it's so beautifully put together so artistically crafted, like, engineered perfectly. I, I I, can't, I have, like, maybe five scenes in my head where every bit about it was perfect. And it's not, you can't say a film is perfect just based on one scene, and I'm not saying that. But at that scene, I've never felt so frightened by something um, that wasn't the monster. Like, realistically, the ghost girl should have been the monster, but no, it was the mom who killed her that it's very, like, I don't want to say Del Toro-y, but it's turning the genre on its head a bit, and that's what I think just sticks with me so much. On top of that, though, you have perfect cinematography, perfect imagery, um, the the setting, the lighting, the mood, everything about that film, just, it feels warm and cold, and it, it pulls and it pushes, it's comforting and threatening all at the same time, and I absolutely love it. And I do think it runs a little bit longer than an average film. I think it's somewhere in like the two-hour range. But it never feels long. I remember the pseudo last time I watched this. This is almost a year now. It was about 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night. Maybe a little earlier, but just barely. And I was like, I was with... Where was I actually? I was, yeah, I think I was with the Girlfriends family. And there was a few of us, there's like four or five of us. And uh, her mom was like, what are we watching? And it was like, I think between The Dark Knight and The Sixth Sense. And they're both long movies, but I don't know how, but we ended up picking The Sixth Sense. And it flew by. I enjoyed every minute and everybody else did. No one pulled up their phone. Everyone was glued to the TV. It's just one of those films that no matter what, no matter how many times you've seen it, no matter, like, even if you know the twist, the twi- knowing the twist without finding, like, the finding out the twist, you're always looking for little eccentric details. And then you're eventually looking back at it being like, well, how wouldn't you have noticed this? Why would you have done this? But it's flawless. Flawless. Like, there's, I can't think of any time where I'm like, I'm, you know you, when you go to a magician show, like a magic show, there's the people that go to enjoy it. And there's the people that go to watch the fuck up to see where the trick happens. No matter how you slice it, if you watch it either way, this film, you will enjoy it like every time you won't find the flaws or, and if you don't look for them, you're going to be absolutely like moved. It's an emotional movie. It's scary. It's heartwarming. It's got all the right notes. And for that reason, the sixth sense is one of my all time favorite movies, a perfect horror film.
3: This is the story of two young American students traveling through England on the night of the full moon.
4: Did you hear that? I heard that. What was it? Could be a
3: lot of things. Fate let one live. That lunatic must have been a very fierce fellow. Wasn't a lunatic. What? A wolf. Oh, be serious, would you? And now everything is changing. 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 Good Lord. John Landis, the brilliant young director of Animal House and The Blues Brothers, has turned a classic tale of terror into something new, something different.
0: Next on that list, I would have to say, is another classic. Like an all-time classic. Um, that's the thing. Uh, a few of these films that I'm going to be talking about, they are kind of safe choices. And what I mean by that is they are choices that have stood the test of time that are always going to be on top 10 lists or scariest features of the decade they came out on or even just like, uh, I don't know, best hor- like best horror film, best makeup, uh, scariest film. Like these films are... I hate to see this when it comes to horror because it is such a touchy subject, like a touchy genre, but they are more mainstream. Some of them, some of them not so much. Uh, some of them are old too. So a lot of the kids aren't going to be watching them, but this film definitely stands up. Not quite as young as uh, The Sixth Sense, which does make me feel old to say that because The Sixth Sense is 1999. But this film here is from 1981. It is a British American horror comedy film directed by John Landis. It is an American werewolf in London. Now, I'm sure I've talked about this film a few times on the podcast before. This is, even if it wasn't a perfect horror film, it is one of my favorite movies and one of the movies, if not the movie, one of the movies that took my horror film virginity that I watched like start to finish and enjoyed the hell out of it. Sure, I might have watched a horror movie or something that scared the bejesus out of me and I never finished it for well, probably for that reason. But this film, I loved every bit of it. And sure, some of it was probably because of Jenny Agater, but I loved it. It is one of those films, quality of the film aside, I feel like this, much like Abbott and Costello uh, meet Frankenstein, is one of those films that opens the door for a new audience to jump into horror. And for that, it gets points, definitely gets points. doesn't mean it's perfect, But let me just say why it is. Now this film was the film that arguably like meshed perfectly when combining both the horror and the comedy genres together, which most comedians will tell you and most horror fans will tell you, or people that do both, that the two genres go hand in hand. You're setting up basically like the punchline, right? You want the gag at the end. So you're building up the suspense to have the the scary thing happen, or like it comes out of nowhere. Same as with comedy. You're setting up the like the, the routine to get the punchline or maybe the punchline comes out of nowhere. You get that surprise laugh. They are more similar than you realize. This film does it in spades and it nails it. And it's such a good blend. It is a perfect blender smoothie of the two genres. You get a lot of scary, you get some comedy. You get a little bit of scary, a little bit of comedy. It's like constantly balancing yin and yang. And it's so so good griffin dunn saves this movie not to say that david naughton is not good he is great and he like that's why it's perfect everybody here does an amazing job and i love it and i love it it's so so good so to give a little bit of background uh the film tells of um the tells of the film tells the story of two americans i don't know what their age class is it kind of seems like they're i they're kind of just graduating university so this is two friends uh two americans and they're going to like backwoods england um that's kind of where the film opens up and they go to the um i don't know where it is but they're trekking across like kind of like the highlands or whatever i don't know i've never been to england i'm not gonna pretend i have but anyways they go into this pub it's called the slaughtered lamb and they're all like saying hey watch out like don't fuck around and they're like thinking like they're busting their balls because they're americans and they are a little bit but then they're like dead serious and they're like fuck this place and they leave and then they're attacked and i can I, if you guys are smart people you're listening to the show you know what they were attacked by and griffin dunn dies jack uh it's jack right yeah so it's jack griffin dunn's character is jack and david Naughton's character is david so that worked out really nice for him um so jack dies Now, a couple things that I absolutely love about this film. The makeup in this film and the effects, top notch. Top notch. That's the thing about practical effects. If they were done well, and a lot of them were, especially in the 80s, that was like peak heyday for practical effects. Not gonna say they're all good. Some are, some have aged like milk. But these effects were done by the Rick Baker. This is like the film, arguably, that put him on the map. Now, if you listen to past episodes, I've talked about him a little bit. I've brought up Schlock, which I just purchased. I'm very happy about that. Got that at quite the steal. Not the time to be talking about this, though. And he also did the 1976 film King Kong. So this guy knows his stuff. Now, if you're like, I don't know if he knows his stuff. Maybe Tyler's lying to me, throwing this film. You'll never question me again. Top-notch stuff. The transformation scene is the scene everyone will always talk about. It'll be on, like, every documentary about horror, about special effects, about... um, makeup about werewolves it is always the scene and for good reasons kind of drawing back to what i was saying before this film is a safe choice but it's because it's so good it's so good and i know i'm not the only one who thinks this and i don't want to i don't want people to think oh tyler just picks the mainstream stuff it's just this is a classic for a reason and if you haven't seen it you have to put it on the pain that David Naughton brings out in that transformation scene combined with Rick Baker's effects, you feel every goddamn emotion for this poor guy. He never asked for it. That's the tragic thing about werewolves. You see it in tons of movies. You didn't ask for this. You didn't fuck up. You weren't created by some madman and you aren't like some creature of the night that like preys on innocence for fun. You are literally trapped in this curse and you see it, you feel it. And this is the first film, to my knowledge, don't hold me to it, where you actually feel the pain of a transformation. You're not watching a time-lapse of Lon Chaney Jr. You're seeing every bit of him crunching and breaking and stretching, just constantly becoming this wolf. And he's screaming out like, I'm sorry I called you Meatloaf, Jack. It's it's traumatizing. And, and they do kind of the thing that I sometimes I appreciate in film, sometimes I don't, and that is the POV shot. Less is more. For this film, it works. Much like in Jaws, although I don't like Jaws, credit where credit's due, sometimes less is more, and this film does it. The soundtrack is great. Um, Everything to do with moons, everything to do with wolves. I'm pretty sure it's moons, so you get like three different versions of Blue Moon, all amazing. Definitely my favorite is the Sam Smith. Um, You get like Bad Moon Rising, tons of tons of moon it's John Landis so he's just he's having a fucking kick with this he was at the top of his game when he made this film and he was at the top of his game for a long time I I miss him I wish he'd come back and do some good stuff again but that's not what we're here to talk about again either oh right so this is kind of the thing that I feel sometimes gets overlooked and I'm not going to yammer about this too much more but David when he is being diagnosed i guess so sex scene aside which is like oh my god and like the watching like um jack deteriorate david has visions and although the jack deteriorating visions are my favorite you get to see him every time he comes back in like david's mind he's like more and more falling apart and it's just like that attention to detail and he's still like jack and he's having a kick with it i loved it i love it this is a perfect film to me, I find. Anyways, David has these visions and he's constantly like, it's over the top. But the Nazi werewolves coming in and slitting everyone's throat that he like holds dear to him and shooting him up. It's just like, why would he be thinking about that? But it's like every evil that comes to his mind. And it's just weird little details like that where you can over dissect and over analyze a film that probably didn't mean it too, too deeply. It's layers and I love it. And like I said, you feel for David you feel for jack even though jack's like dead instantly he's still throughout the film you buy david's love like you think like if this didn't happen to him he would have had the best trip in england and but if it didn't happen to him he wouldn't have met jenny agater he wouldn't have i don't know it's so sad and then just the film abruptly ends that's it and you're kind of like am i turning this on again and that's already why it's a perfect film. To me, An American Werewolf in London is a perfect horror film. I could talk about it more and more. But I think I'm going to cut myself off here. Throw it on this Halloween. Throw any of these films that I'm bringing up today on for Halloween. Throw them on whenever. But damn, these are moods, so throw them on. I oh, I just love that film. Anyways. <laughs>
4: Right up to the top of his age. All around his ears.
3: Flora's worried about Griffin.
4: I had a terrible feeling last night. I felt he was in desperate trouble.
3: He meddled in things men should leave alone.
2: <laughs> Not the slightest clue. That's where the clues are. He wasn't leaving anything to chance. There must be a way back. he knows <laughs> is a way back. Are you Leave
1: me alone. It's the stranger with the goggles. He's gone mad. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll
5: show you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, the next pick is kind of. It's kind of an iffy one. The only problem is, is that it was in a. very close race with two other films, and I will tell you what those other films were, but the reason I picked this film was is because I, I, I saw this film first, and so it had the most impact on me that way. As well, I find this film in particular breaks the mold that a lot of these films that are, are spanning over a couple decades kind of follow. They all vary in story and they all vary in characters, but they all kind of follow the same sort of story, um, except for this character. And I absolutely love it because of that. And this film is 1933's, directed by James Whale, The Invisible Man. Now, the other two films that were very, very close runner-ups were 1931's Frankenstein, also directed by James Whale, and Jack Arnold's 1954 film, The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Both huge, huge favorites. I love me some Frankenstein's Monster. I love me some Gill Both films in their own right are gorgeous films filled with allegories, filled with beautiful scenery, filled with wonderful stories with actually well-written characters and layers and layers. You could totally dissect them in any which way you want it. And they're all amazing. But The Invisible Man is on a whole other level, and I know in classic universal horror fashion, I'm gonna have a bunch of people picketing me with pitchforks and torches, but there's something about Claude Rains' character, uh, Griffin, who sets the bar a little bit higher, and that's because unlike your classic monsters, whether it's like Wolfman, who's like I said, is trapped in this like curse who didn't bring it upon himself, uh, or it's like the Gill Man or Dracula who are in those films, creatures that have always been that way or have been that way long enough where their motives are their, are their own. Dracula's kind of closer to this, as in he is evil, but he's a creature. He is like something supernatural, something up above, separate. Same with Frankenstein's monster or even the mummy. They are things that, I guess the mummy in a sense is similar to this. What I'm beating around the bush to is that Griffin did this to himself. This is a normal man, granted a genius who had a stroke of luck, who created a formula, who knew straight up that it could cause temporary insanity and took it like any one of us else would have done. He took this formula and he became the invisible man and he rides it. He literally loses it to the point where he's like, I am invisible now, no one can stop me, I am going to rob all the banks, I'm going to (laughs) like, I'm going to burn down cities, I'm going to take over the world, the world is mine, and he rides that hard, he goes all the way in, and he, and it's because this, you see a man, arguably maybe a normal man with maybe some ill intentions, but really just a normal person who goes off the deep end and loves it, and it's just, that sense I'm like yes like anybody could totally agree with that somebody's a little off their hinge a little bit like me would totally agree with that even more it's just the fact that this isn't a monster this isn't a, a creature this isn't something that's cursed he did it to himself and he loves it and he's not trying to turn it away he's trying to make more of it he wants it and I love it story aside Claude Rains perfect choice you can't The thing with The Invisible Man, if you haven't seen The Invisible Man, this 1933 film, it's about a man who creates a formula, who turns him invisible, and basically he's plotting to destroy the village, rob, take over, right? And then they're trying to stop him. That's a very shorthand version of what takes place, what transpires. But throughout the film, he's invisible. So how do you show a star who's invisible? answer you don't you have somebody who is so charismatic so bold so intense and just dripping with emotion and ch- like i might have said charisma already but power in his voice and claude rain has that he's literally soaked with just charisma and in like umph really every every pronunciation is just rich and just it just rolls and rumbles and basically how he moves about is some of it, but you're giving everything through just voice. It's literally listening to a moving radio drama, if that makes sense. And I I, can't, I still can't think, I, I was trying to think of somebody who's like more modern, who would do better. Don't get me wrong. When The Invisible Man returns, Vincent Price kills it. Vincent Price's voice is like butter. I could listen to it all day. There are a few people that maybe could have had like a good voice, but nothing that just makes you feel like this is an, an omnipotent. This is like a, a, a brooding presence of a man who's just twisted and Claude Rains does it. He does it. The set, everything is in classic, normal, universal horror fashion, universal monsters. That already is a notch for me. That is a huge notch. and I'm all about it. Always have been. I love me some atmosphere and it has it. Most of the universal horror movies have it. So it's kind of like a freebie, but it does. And it it's great. And James Whale owns his craft. Now, James Whale is known for just totally, he's not like the first auteur, but like he would be in charge. So he made the film he wanted to make. Now, don't get me wrong, the source material for this, H.G. Wells, if you have the time, check it out. That and the time machine, very, very good. But that's not what we're talking about. He is the director of Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man. I'm pretty sure he did Old Dark House, And he basically commanded the screen with his presence and his vision. And you can just feel him. When you like, if you ever do a little research on him and see where he was coming from, his background, what he was about, he puts himself in every film, and that is super important as a director. If you're just basically painting by numbers what the script is, then it's not going to be anything special. And that holds true for any genre. But this film crushes it. You are on board it's it's weird it's the opposite of what i was saying with david it's the opposite of what i was saying with cole in the last two films this film you're watching him spiral out you're watching griffin the invisible man spiral out and you're on board you are completely bought into this much like how you'd want to see like in the for example you'd want to see the joker succeed even though it's twisted even though it's not right you know it's not right It's always hard sometimes to not root for the bad guy. You want to see Hannibal Lecter succeed. You don't want to see Clarice succeed. You want to see the bad guy succeed. And this film does it. It does it well. And on top of that, you have amazing special effects. 1933 was the year for special effects. Um, Just trust me on that. For example, like King Kong. Wow. Invisible Man, though, it's the way they do it is think about this. Watch a film from 1933, black and white, and watch the special effects and just think about how did they do that? Sure, you're going to watch the film and you're going to think, yes, this is flawless. Yes, this is amazing. Or, you're, you know, you might not even think anything of it. Like nothing passes your mind. But that is the perfect thing about it. It's from 1933. Yes, I know it's unfair to hold a film based on when it was made to now and say like, well, because it holds up, it must be good. But, but, but it's true. Right, if a film is made in 1933 and it's still flawless, and you're still wondering how did they do that, especially without computers, especially without this, it doesn't make the film perfect, absolutely not. But does it add? Absolutely. That's a huge plus for the film. And throwing characterization, throwing good story, throwing good direction, amazing special effects, touching score, Claude Rains, just as Claude Rains, just as his voice, it's just, I. Anytime I think of the Invisible Man, I can't help it. Like, just his voice is just so deep and guttural and just, that's terrible. I'm sorry, by the way. But it's just, everything he says, um, like when he says, there's a souvenir for you and one for you, and I'll show you who I am and what I am. That's the best I can do, don't hold me to it. That just that like, then one for you and one for you. And like, and he's just so, he starts off as a man who's like, I will find the cure, I'll find the cure. And you watch him and you feel him as he loses it, as he slowly goes insane. And like, he starts unraveling much like the bandages that conceal him, another little film major thing for you right there. And it's just, everything about it is so, so great. And I know just saying over and over again that it's great and it's good and it's amazing doesn't mean anything and it holds no weight, but it's true. Like I said, the mood is brooding. The atmosphere is amazing. It's cold, it's wintry. They're kind of shut into this little isolated like area. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I wanna gush about it more, but really it's, it's hard on my end to explain why I find a film is so perfect. So you'll just have to watch it and find out for yourself. I know it sounds cheesy, and I did have some more here, and I I definitely had a nice tangent, and I wrapped it up in a nice bow. But due to technology, I lost it. Seriously, guys, you got to check out The Invisible Man. Of all the monster films that you're going to watch of universal horror, this is the one that holds up the most. It has the most character development. has the most different story that you're going to see. And honestly, it's probably going to be one of the most memorable. Of like the 10 that are available, it's going to be the most memorable. So check that one out. That is a perfect horror film.
3: Monsters do have their place. In the zoo, in your nightmares, in the deep, in your favorite horror movies. Boys, get your Dracula fangs free as you
2: enter the theater. Fight back, fight back against the world's most evil man, Dracula, Prince of Darkness.
3: Girls, Get your zombie eyes free as you enter the theater. Don't be the next victim of the plague of the zombies.
0: Now, before I get into the last pick that I have for this episode, the fourth pick, the final pick, obviously there is going to be more picks. I mean, there's a lot of amazing, amazing horror films spanning from decades. Like the first horror film, let's say, it's like, I don't know. The first real horror film that we hold as horror films probably started in the 20s. So for 100 years almost now, we've had horror films. So there's bound to be some good ones. So I had two honorable mentions. I'm not going to go in deep. I'm just going to talk a little bit about them. Very tiny. Just ones that I would have included, but didn't quite make the cut for one reason or another. And actually, let me just throw in another one here. I was going to throw in The Conjuring. I was going to throw it in. But I decided last minute that as a series is probably more desirable to talk about. So I did a whole episode on it. I love that first movie. It is very close to being perfect. But I felt it just sort of missed the mark. So I didn't include it. But my honorable mentions were Creep. Creep came out in 2011, 2012. God, that's probably not right. Give me one second here. Okay, so now, Creep came out in 2014, and it's a... If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. There's Creep 1 and there's Creep 2. Creep 2 is a solid sequel. Not quite as good, but a very good sequel. Um, they're both found footage films. From what I remember, the second one is 2, and they're both available on Netflix, Canadian Netflix. Don't hold me to American stuff. So you can watch them. Um, they have Mark Duplass... Duplass? Duplass in it, and he... Kills it. He owns this movie. If this was any other person, I wouldn't have enjoyed it. It's not like he's my favorite actor, but when somebody kills it at a role, they kill it. And I wasn't expecting to enjoy this film as much as I did. But when a film leaves such a lasting impression on you, like what I was talking about, everything from when there's the there's like a few twists in this film. I'm not gonna lie, but that very first twist, I was like, oh my god, like you do not expect it all the way to how it ends. That end is abrupt, it is swift, and it comes cleaving down on you, and you do not expect it, and I still think about it from time to time. It is not a long film at all. It, it runs in at like 77 minutes, 80 minutes, so it's like an hour 15, an hour 20, credits excluded. It's a very short film, and It is just a journey. You don't even realize what you're watching. It's almost like you're watching a day in the life, like a small vlog and it's powerful and it's moving and it's emotional and you're like, okay, I get it. I understand it and things amp up. And it's not like a little build. It is gradually like an, an uphill graph, just like a, it's just, it doesn't stop either. And even when you think you're safe when you're like it's a cooling period and you think okay this guy's going to get out of here okay this isn't going to happen you're wrong every time and it's not like a jump scare you're wrong or you saw it coming you're wrong it's just you're wrong and you don't know where it's going to go and i absolutely loved it and it's not quite a perfect film but it was close and i was going to talk about it but yeah definitely check out creep from 2014 directed by patrick bryce very good film now the other film on the other hand I probably would have said it's perfect, but I haven't watched it in some time. The only reason I am including it is because the last time I saw this film was five years ago and it's still clear as day to me, clear as day. It left a haunting impression. I absolutely loved it. And that is the 1980 Canadian supernatural classic directed by Peter Medak, The Changeling. Now. Like weird pseudo intro aside, that film is haunting. It is, it grabs you and it pulls you in and much like The Sixth Sense, it is not scare to scare to scare, but it is very close and it's more of a building up tension. You are drawn in to George C. Scott's character. You feel for George C. Scott's character and you are rooting for him and you want to find out the answers And uh, it's a smart enough film to know that you as an audience member don't want everything spoon-fed to you. It's giving you some pieces so you're kind of figuring it out on your own while George is figuring it out. And I do love that in films, not just in horror films, but in any film when you are figuring out something the same time the character is or when you are on the same sort of ride with the rest of the audience... I do enjoy that. I love it a lot. I hate feeling smarter than the film. I hate it when a film is playing playing something up and you've already figured out the twist or you already know like the guy is his dad or you already know like he's the chosen one like 20 minutes into the film. I hate it. I absolutely hate it. It kills me. So when this film takes you on this winding journey of figuring out stuff mixed in with solid scares, like anybody who's seen this film knows the, the, the classic ones, like the big one is the ball. The, that ball scene is something that haunts me. The bathtub stuff too, but the ball is what haunts me. The ball bouncing down the stairs when he knows he's home alone. There should be no one else in the house and the ball bounces down the stairs. I could be adding this in, but I'm pretty sure you hear laughter. This kid is like, this, it's like a tortured child in this house after George C. Scott lost his family immediately in a freak car accident. And he gets to the bottom of it. He it is, You were on this journey with him as he is like, this is my goddamn purpose now. And he is like, I'm going to figure it out. He pours his life into figuring this out. He goes to all costs, all risks. And he figures this out to like basically give this ghost peace, to give this ghost closure. And I mean, a little bit of points because it's a Canadian film. When there's a good Canadian horror film, instantly gets like 12 points, like 12 points for Gryffindor over here. I do enjoy it. I love it a lot. This film I find flies under the radar way too much. And I feel like I've brought this up on a different episode, Um, but definitely the changeling would have been up there. I feel like I said, if I talked about, if I watched it recently, I might've thrown this on the list, but I haven't. The fact that I've seen this like almost five years ago, if not older than that, like longer than that, it's almost like I watched it two weeks ago, even though it's been five years ago, one time. I had not seen clips, everything about it, it's clear as day, and I loved it. I loved it. And if there was ever a great release by Scream Factory or Arrow or, I don't think Criterion would release it, but if they did, I'd love it. If they ever released it, I would definitely buy it. So definitely check out Creep and the Changeling. Not quite perfect, but damn near close. And now for the final pick. Hello? Hello?
3: Who is this?
0: Tell me your name, I'll tell you mine.
3: (laughs) I don't think so.
0: What's that noise? Popcorn. You making popcorn?
3: Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video.
0: Really? What?
3: Just some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh Uh-huh. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name?
1: I want to know who I'm looking at. Someone
3: is playing a deadly game. It all began with a scream over 911. Someone who's seen one too many scary movies. Now he's taken his love of
0: fear. Hello? Hello, Sydney. One step too far. Do you like scary movies? Now, the last pick is arguably a little harder to justify being on this list for many people, I'm sure. But I definitely feel it belongs here. This is. A classic film and it is arguably the best the finest thing that came out of the entire decade which you know isn't isn't like the highest praise it wasn't the best decade for horror but anyways this is wes craven's arguably one of his best works it's 1996's scream the original scream now I know what you're thinking. Scream isn't that perfect. It's kind of like an overrated slasher. And I I hear you. I hear you loud and clear. It is definitely overrated. But what you are forgetting is that it changed the game for horror. And while that doesn't make it a perfect film, give credit where credit is due. This film is very smart. And it totally, yes, it kind of ruined horror in a lot of ways because every film tried to be like that or tried to be meta or smart or as edgy as Scream was. But when Scream came out, And if you just look at scream for scream as a film not thinking of any other films that came after it just thinking kind of primarily of what came before it it was smart you felt as an audience member that you were on the same mindset as everybody in this film right so take jamie kennedy's character for example randy he is the guy who has seen all the horror movies he works at the video store. He had the dream job for most horror buffs and all like basically film buffs at that time. He knew the rules. He knew how to stay alive. And I mean that is the person you you relate with. Even Nev Campbell's character, uh Sydney, Sydney Prescott, I believe. She is smart. She knows the ideals. Like you can see it even if you just watch the trailer. Like that first scene where she's on the phone with Ghostface, she says like like he asked her like how do you feel about horror films and she's like it's stupid like you always have like this big titty girl who's running up the stairs when she should be running out getting help and it doesn't make any sense it's insulting and that is the kind of heroine you want that's why we've had four films with Sydney because she is the the final girl who's smart. Yes, there are final girls who are strong. There are final girls who out, maybe outsmart the bad guy. But she is just like a down-to-earth, not a ditzy idiot. She's She doesn't abide by many of the rules. She is traumatized. She's layered. Like a damaged but still normal character. It's how most people identify in one way or another. I know like we're all kind of like butterflies that way. We're, we're all so damaged. And like yeah, we are. But at the same time, I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm on a tangent here. Scream, though. Smart kills. Deep kills. Like, they're meta. Like, you get where every one of these kills are. When the killer knows the same amount of info that you do, and almost on a higher level, that's really... It's interesting. It's gripping. And it's not like Freddy Krueger. It's not like Michael Myers, where there's like either witty remarks and dumb kills or just like unexplainable kills. This is a person who is outsmarting. There is a who-done-it mystery to it. There's, even though it's kind of like at the end, it is it is, you are on a ride with all of these characters. It's not like a Friday the Thirteenth film where all the characters you don't know anything about them, you don't care about them, and they're just getting picked off one by one. Each person fills a specific role, a specific type. They all have their their story arcs. They all have that where they're going. Their narrative structures and you feel like that could be your group of friends. You feel like if you were in high school in 1996, that could be the group of friends that you're hanging out with. They all fill a specific niche role. And while that doesn't mean that it's perfect, it's, it all like culminates together in like this like delicious stew of sorts, awful analogy. And I, I don't know, I just feel like Scream belongs here. It, it's a very overlooked film because yes, it was overdone. Everybody tried to overdo it. Everybody tried to one-up it. But if you just look at it, it's like the core thing. It's like apple pie on its own is goddamn delicious. But once people found out apple pie is good, then you have those Americans throwing cheese on it. You've got the Dutch putting cream in it. Everybody's got to have ice cream with it. Everybody's got to have sugar on the crust. It's like, but you know what? Apple pie just on its own? Goddamn delicious. And sure, they might have been eating apple pie before. But, you know, let's say for this, they tried using Granny Smith's and it just gives it that little extra zing. You're like, goddamn it, You know what? I could, I could only ever eat this ever again. Like, this is a perfect pie. It doesn't need all the extra bells and whistles. It's going to water it down. It's not going to make it as good. This is how it is to me. Scream is like apple pie made with Granny Smith's. Like, it's that little zing that's just that nice refresher in the horror genre. And does it make it absolutely perfect for everybody? No. But these are my perfect horror films, and I love the characters. I love Ghostface. Ghostface is a bad guy. as a boogeyman. He... It, he definitely should be welcomed in with open arms. He, he welcomes the ranks with like all of the original universal horror monsters with the hammer horror guys with all of the eighties, like the seventies, eighties boogeyman. And he, he joined right in there with Candyman, And he came right in there with leprechaun. Well, uh, <laughs> let's not jump the shark there, but uh, he is definitely a, a granite boogeyman. And it's why the franchise still has legs. It's why MTV made three seasons of a show. It's why they're talking about maybe doing a reboot and why it had four, like installments and they're all equally good three mm, not so good but one and two unreal four i actually really love that one is more of a hidden gem less of a perfect film but skib- give scream one another viewing i don't know if you guys have watched it to death i don't know if you haven't seen it in a while throw it on tell me what you think just go in open-minded just experience it again it's so hard with a movie like that to go in with fresh eyes but i find every time i watch Scream one. I'm just as fascinated with the characters, with the dialogue, with the story, how it's shot, the suspense, the tension. I am just as enthralled every single time. Minor diminishing returns, but God damn it, I'm human, right? It's not Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense is the cream of the crop for this list, but every single time I enjoy it. Every single time I throw it on. And the fact that I keep throwing it on once a year, it's not tradition. There's so many films to throw on, but I'm like, damn, this is a good-ass film. I want to watch this film. I'm always drawn to it. Um, yeah, Scream 1, nothing tied to it. All the last three films, there's some sort of connection. Granted, Sixth Sense is perfect in every which way. American Werewolf in London, perfect in every which way. Invisible Man, sure. Some people might say there's better out there, and you're entitled to that. This movie is the exact same way. You're definitely entitled to say it, but I think those are my four favorites. But I'm not going to leave you guys there. no, 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 no. No. I uh, I might have asked a few friends, a few colleagues in the industry, a couple of uh, higher up there, say, uh, you know, a few people that might know a thing or two far more than me to give their input. Now, these are people who have their own podcasts. They are artists. They are people in the horror community. They are people who are well-established. They know their stuff. And you've listened to me. So if you will, let me just get the door here and let me introduce you to a couple people that you might enjoy as they give you their ideas on what perfect horror is.
6: Hey Tyler, it's Lucas2Blue, you you know, the one guy we collaborated on a podcast together. Anyways, I feel like I wanted to weigh in on this topic of horror movies and what I think makes uh, a perfect horror movie and the two movies that I believe are perfect horror movies in my own opinion. So the first one I want to talk about is Suspiria from 2018. This is directed by Luca Guadagnino. Um, He has a really interesting voice in cinema as a director. He hasn't done a lot of horror uh, before this. He's done Call Me By Your Name and other films like, I think, uh, Bigger Splash is one of them. I might be totally misquoting myself there. Um, But that doesn't matter. Um, The reason I love Suspiria 2018 is it's got such a unique style of film. And what I mean by that is it takes a lot from its um, original um, in the 70s in terms of film techniques. And it tries to kind of, um, you know, play along with a little bit of the 70s aesthetic of film. Um, It looks like it's shot on film I don't know for sure on that But um, I just love the kind of look of this film It's quite beautiful It's really amazing Um, He does just the cinematography It's all very old style techniques That um, are very just classic and beautiful um, But are also really really good at building tension for the film uh, something that I just like absolutely love about that film is it it's tension, it's uh freakiness. You you never know what's gonna happen until the very end. Like there's these this, these just creepy, creepy stuff that happens um throughout the film, but you're really kinda lost. And it's very almost ambiguous. They don't really explain things very well. Um there are some scenes that go into a little bit of the depth of The Suspiria Academy Dance Academy It's not the Suspiria Dance Academy It's called, I don't know what the academy is called But it's a dance academy um, And it goes into the depth of like Which of the Mothers are in charge And it's a series of like mothers And they're all kind of witches um, In this dance academy Uh, And they are Trying to find their Kind of next predecessors For a big um, sacrifice sort of thing. Um, I don't want to spoil it too much, but the practical effects in this film are insane to look at. Um, there is this, uh, horrible looking, uh, like very aged witch thing that, um, you see midway through the film, that just looks terrifying to look at, and makes these really croaky noises, Um, and the makeup is just fantastic for um, that, and uh, I'll get a little bit into who is playing that in a second. Um, But this film is just, it's incredible to look at, it's so uh, gorgeous, but yet also at the same time very uh, dark and dull, but it has a lot of depth in its shot and its editing is so good. Oh my gosh, so good. Um, one of the things as an editor myself I really look for in films is how good the editing is. This film is probably one of my favorite films from the la- last decade um, in terms of editing. It's just so fantastic in how it cuts in between um, these different shots of like someone dancing and then someone getting like contorted by some evil possession thing. It's terrifying and awful to look at, but at the same time really encapsulates that idea of horror. Um, I could say for sure I was horrified watching this. Um, one thing I really want to talk about in this film is the acting is phenomenal, specifically Dakota Johnson and Tilda Swinton in this film. Um, Dakota, This is probably my favorite role from J- Dakota Johnson. Um, I think my other favorite role from her is Bad Times at El Royale, but she's only a... S- somewhat small character in that film but yeah in this film she is fantastic and I want I'm curious about how much like dancing she had to learn for this film because she just her acting in this film is so raw and just like you can feel the like the all the body movements you see in this film make you feel uncomfortable and you feel like you've done them um because after the scenes you're just like I feel Like I just did those Even though you did not You've been sitting watching it Um, It is crazy to look at um, And it just does such a good job And she just nails the mysteriousness Of her character um, And I love it Uh, Also Tilda Swinton uh, She plays three characters in this film I don't want to spoil who they are um, But uh, One is Madame Blanc That's pretty obvious um, And the two uh, You should look it up later Watch the film before you do um, but it is fantastic, the three roles she plays. It's insane. Um, she brings this whole film together. She and Dakota Johnson are, I believe, the two main characters of this film. Um, without it, uh, the film is... The the film is just heightened so much by their talent on screen. Um, I love Tilda Swinton as an actress. She has so much craft and love for her work she just does it so well no matter the role um but yes and one other thing I want to mention is the setting of this film set against the Berlin Wall and how it shapes the world um uh in terms of political climate even though politics don't play a huge role in this film um it does have some interesting role in the setting of the film um but yes I think this film why it is perfect horror is it shows gore well, it creates a lot of tension, um, it shows body disfigurement, um, in a really, really unique way, um, and it looks so real, um, and uncomfortable, and I love it. The other perfect horror film that I want to talk about is The Thing from 1982, uh, starring Kurt Russell, directed by John Carpenter. This is a much more popular film, obviously, um, but I think my reasons for that being... Uh, are the same reasons that every horror fan loves this film. Is the practical effects of this film hold up so well. I was just re-watching a couple clips from it. Um, it is just gory as hell. Um, it's so disturbing and disgusting to look at. But also um, just amazing how uh, you know real it feels. Um, and I know that they use like peanut butter and like gum and some other stuff like that. I'm not um exactly sure on how they did the monster and his effects, but it just looks so awesome and that film kinda helps shape a lot of sci fi horror and also as well as shape a lot of uh horror in general. Um I've seen the kind of the things talked about and referenced in Stranger Things and other stuff like that. Um but it is a fantastic film. Uh, it the idea of isolation is really resonated in this film. Um, being stuck in Antarctica as well as sending characters out, uh, strapping them to chairs. Um, like there, this, the feeling of distrust with, within a group of people. Um, it is just insane, um, how much this film speaks in terms of its story structure and how the environments it gives you. Um, Also, the monster is super uniquely designed. Um, The alien from another uh, world comes down and starts as the appearance of a Siberian husky. um, Which is crazy to look at. And it's just insane when you see the husky's head first split open. And you're like, what the heck? That's insane. Um, And then it just goes off the rails from there. Um, I want to talk about the soundtrack a little bit. The soundtrack of... Uh, The Thing is a mix of both very instrumental kind of soundtrack as well as the John Carpenter kind of synth sound of the 80s. Um, It's fantastic. It's uh, beautiful to listen to. And it also adds a lot to the film. Um, Especially when you see like the monster crawling on the floor and away and you hear the music kind of lead up to that. It's just awesome and great. Um, But yes, the stop motion effects, the practical effects, all of it. Just super beautiful. And I think um, just very unsettling to look at. Which I think really is perfect for horror. Um, and obviously people know that. Um, but I think these two films are perfect in my opinion. Uh, just because, I don't know, they scare me. Um, and they are horrifying. But they also do a really good job of being movies. And the people in them care. And you can just tell. Because everything feels so real. And so grounded in the craft of filmmaking, but it's just true. It just exemplifies that idea of fear and isolation and trust with the thing and Suspiria it, um, this mystery of like, who are the mothers? What is the, you know, this witched cult thing? Um, how does this dance Academy have to do with it? Just a lot of questioning and just, um, and crazy end scenes. It's, I love it. um, I love these films a lot. They're very personally um, amazing to me and I will always uh, love these films to the end of my day. Um, And I will continue to recommend them to people, um, of course. Um, But yeah, uh, I think also one thing I do, I forgot to mention in the thing is it has one of my like deepest, darkest fears of all time. uh, And that is being like eaten and devoured by a uh, animal or something And then that animal somehow receiving, you know, or using my body as a vessel uh, for its own doing. It's just, that's terrifying to me. Um, So I kind of love that that film was able to exemplify that in a, just in a a beautiful way. Um, Even though it's terrifying to look at, I really enjoy how well it was portrayed. So thanks Tyler for letting me speak on your podcast. But that is my two favorite horror films.
5: Hey, everybody. This is Chardae Sellers. I'm a screenwriter and development exec based in Los Angeles, California. I'm also the creator and co-host of Afro Horror Podcast, a weekly program that celebrates the African-American experience in modern horror film and television. You can tra- catch our trailer uh, right now on all platforms, but our first episode will be dedicated to the 20th anniversary of Deep Blue Sea, and that's going to be on July 24th. So please, please subscribe to our channel and check it out. So I'm here today because I was asked to give my top two most perfect horror films and here they are my first one which should be on everyone's list is Scream 2 and I'm going to give you three reasons why Scream 2 is the most perfect horror film if not most perfect sequel ever sorry aliens um first Ghostface is one of the best slashers we have in the horror franchise what makes ghost space so perfect to me is that it literally could be anybody it's not the boogeyman that lives under your bed it's most likely someone you know and and then possibly someone that you don't know connected to someone you know uh ghost face over time has always been someone with this insane motive that maybe isn't that great but because the scream franchise plays into itself and it's very meta thank you kevin williamson um we can kind of forgive the uh a little motives that our killers have and just makes fun of a really fun slasher film also no one's got a great act in a, in a sequel like the twist in the third act of scream 2 we all thought for a moment it was going to be gail spoiler alert and it's not it's billy's mother with her best friend um whose name escapes me at the moment. But basically, Scream is also known for doing some really cool third-act stuff. Uh, Anyone seen Scream 4? Got you all there, too. And lastly... Sydney Prescott Scream 2 is wonderful because Sydney Prescott is the quintessential final girl. So sorry Laurie Strode, but she's my number 1 pick. She's funny, she's smart, she's brave, she kicks ass, and she just takes the punches as they keep going to her. So Scream 2 is number 1 on my list. Number 2, which I don't know if anyone else will say, but it definitely deserves this next spot is The Descent. The Descent, if you don't know, is a movie about a group of friends who go spelunking. That means cave diving and they meet some seedy little creatures underground who are blind but can hear like a bat and pretty much kills all of them except for one again spoiler alert but uh so for me the descent is perfect because the premise is simple you get a bunch of girls together going deep down in a dark cave with some scary monsters That's it. That's all the movie I want to see. And uh, I don't need to know anything else about that. It's not layered with too much intensity. Um, It doesn't have a lot of stuff for me to follow. Although the the relationships between the women are very interesting. I think I remember one of them was cheating with uh, her best friend's husband. And that was a wonderful third act redemption arc arc, uh, for that character second thing is the monsters the monsters are scary and their prosthetics and makeup and it's not cgi and they're done by stunt performers and you could tell and the movements and everything was so well thought out uh, on the production side about these creatures that seriously i've seen the movie came out more than 10 years ago and if you watch it today it still holds up and the last but not least uh, for The Descent, why I think it's the most perfect Horror film, and also for Scream 2, it's that uh, It has a gang of Badass women, which Always makes for a fun horror film For me, um, these aren't your damsels In distress, these aren't your screaming Crying girls running from Mr. Killer They are giving these creatures Hell, and giving each other hell Too, and I love it, and I wish There was more of it, so that's it for me Shardae Sellers from Afro Horror Podcast My top two, Scream 2 And The Descent Thank you for having me.
0: We had fan-favorite artist and horror kaiju aficionado Bill Byron Kutcher write in for this special episode. You can find Bill's amazing work and film rants at Bill B. Kutcher on Instagram. Bill was kind enough to write in with a different but welcome stance on perfect horror, as instead of one film, he picked an entire season of one of television's greatest horror outputs. Bill writes, Thank you very much. Here's some thoughts that I had on David Lynch and Mark Frost's Twin Peaks The Return. It's his favorite horror recently. Bill writes, My favorite thing about David Lynch is his humor. His work has always been funny, just like great horror usually is. They're from a similar place, horror and comedy. They need to build and release tension, cope with things in those two interlinked ways. Lynch's goal has always been in pursuing the deepest levels of truth. The truth he digs for is so buried, so hard to illustrate down there at its very core, that he chooses to illustrate in abstracts to diffuse difficult moments with off-putting comedy, juxtaposing the disturbing parts, and to explain grim reality with symbols and fantasy. Nervous laughter creeping in, the thrill of being deeply uprooted, unsettled, Feeling as if you've entered subconscious thought. The crux of the show began as the daughter's rape and the murder of the hands of her father. Lynch and Frost asked, is it any more comforting, a daughter raped or murdered by her own father with no explanation, with no reason at all? No story can best the horror of reality, but to try and explain that darkness in human nature through art and imagination is the challenge they undertook, which reached conclusion with the return. What if an otherworldly evil had invaded our reality? What if there was something that fed on the concentrated pain and suffering out there in the woods outside of town? What if it was trying to mate? How could that be combated? What is a world unbalanced to darkness? Would we notice? What if the world was more than what it seemed? More than just a senseless murder? That's the thrill of Twin Peaks. Comfortable reality fallen into dream logic to try and better make sense of suffering, and to put a face on who benefits. Twin Peaks is an artistic spirit streamscape, far outside religious retelling of good and evil, illustrating both and explaining our own reality through symbols and question marks, leaving you, the viewer, with nothing at the end but a scream and darkness. True dread great nightmares produce and are hard to remember. It is a TV show, but basically functions as a long movie. It is my favorite that David Lynch has done.
4: Hey, Tyler, this is Derek from Monster Kid Radio. Hello, everybody who's listening to the podcast. Tyler, thank you so much for inviting me to send something in for your perfect horror episode. It really is quite an honor to share the love that I have for a lot of these movies with other people and to be asked to join your show. Well, it was very cool. Thank you so much for doing that. So I am the guy behind Monster Kid Radio, where we celebrate the classic and sometimes the not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. That typically means that I travel in a lot of black and white cinema. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of color in there too, but typically my cinematic wheelhouse it has a soft cutoff of around 1968. There's a couple of different reasons for that. Most notably, Night of the Living Dead came out at that point, and that movie really kind of changed the horror game forever. So I kind of use that as my cutoff. Although I do toe dip into the 70s quite a bit. When I was thinking about perfect horror movies for me, I wanted to stick to that pre-1968. And anybody who listens to Monster Kid Radio or Honestly, anybody who listens to me for more than five to ten minutes in any conversation knows that my favorite film is Creature from the Black Lagoon. Webbed hands down, this is the movie for me. There's a movie that I want to pop in at any time. Doesn't matter what's going on. If I'm flipping through channels and I happen to stumble across it, it doesn't matter. I will watch Creature. I'm lucky enough that up here in Portland, Oregon, I have access to a number of theaters up here who like to play older movies, retro movies, that sort of thing, and a lot of times Creature gets played up here, a lot of times in 3D, and every time I make it a point to go. That said, as much as I love this film, I love the music, I love the photography, I love the cinematography, I love the monster design, oh wow, the Gilman's amazing, and of course I love Julie Adams, can I say it's the quote-unquote perfect horror movie? Well, uh, qualified, yes, perhaps. I mean, it does have the requisite monster to make it a monster movie, and on top of everything that I've already mentioned that I love about the film, there's just so much more to it. It's a nice bridging movie between the classic universal monster mold with Frankenstein, the Wolfman, Dracula and all that. And the atomic horrors that they were getting into in the 50s or the science fiction horrors with like it came from outer space and things along those lines. It's a nice connector between those two subgenres within the subgenre that we call monster movies. Is it above all criticism? No, i mean there are a couple of issues here and there that uh, i heard people talk about and honestly i agree i am a little uncomfortable with just one or two elements in the movie but i'm able to accept that and move on i don't feel like i have to justify my love for creature from the black lagoon i mean it's a beloved film by almost everybody that i know and if you don't love the movie i don't know if i want to know you anyway (laughs) that sounded harsh Anyway, I guess what I'm getting at is it's a perfect movie for me, but is it a perfect movie overall? I uh, Do I wish that Julie Adams' character had a little bit more agency as the film progresses? She's great at the beginning. She's wonderful at the beginning. But as soon as you get her into the Black Lagoon and things start going sideways, she does lose a little bit of her oomph and she does start to fall into the damsel in distress model, which isn't perfect. I mean, I know it was a staple of the movies at the time, but no, it's not perfect. So I'm not going to talk anymore about that film, even though every part of me wants to. Instead, I'm going to stay within the universal monster canon and talk about something else. And I'm going to give you a little hint, a a teaser as to what it might be. (laughs) Okay, that might be a cheat, but that's just a little tiny bit of music from the movie's trailer. Why, why don't I do this instead? Maybe this will help you figure out what it is. No! Wow! Come out, chick! Come here, Come Wait a minute! I know, that's not a lot. So, one more hint The nation's top comics, Abbott and Costello, petrified, but hilariously. Ah! Plus, the dangerous and terrifying Wolfman. Played by Lon Chaney. Plus that fiend out of a nightmare, the vampire Batman Count Dracula, played by Bela Lugosi. 1948's Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. This is a monster rally in the truest sense of the word. It has everything you can possibly want from a universal monster romp, from a classic monster romp. Dracula, Frankenstein's mummy, and the Wolfman all mixing it up together. You've got two out of the three big names of classic universal horror. You've got Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney Jr. in the movie. You don't have Boris Karloff. He was kind of over the monster thing at this point, which is unfortunate, but Glenn Strange does an amazing job as well and really made the role his own. And you've got Abbott and Costello in the mix. This is the first time they did a Meet the Monster style type movie. This movie really kind of revitalized their career a little bit and re- revitalized the monster thing for Universal as well, because this fed into Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man, Abbott and Costello meet the Mummy, Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You know, They meet the Mummy as well. And the killer Boris Karloff. So at least you get a little bit of Karloff there too. And Karloff did help promote this film as well. And to be clear and transparent here, and I'm not just saying that because the Invisible Man has a cameo at the end of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. But to be clear, Abbott and Costello did deal with some spooky stuff before in the movie Hold That Ghost, which happened to co-star Richard Carlson, who's in Creature from the Black Lagoon. Viva Lynn Anchor says in that film too, and she's in The Wolfman. So, you know, it's all kind of connected. Also, Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein was the very first universal monster movie I ever saw. I knew the stories of these movies going into this film. I knew what happened in Dracula. I knew what happened in Son of Frankenstein, all that, because I had read about them growing up. But Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein was the very first one of the films I actually sat down to watch. And I was blown away. Charles Barton's direction, the way he's able to handle the comedic moments that, well, Abbott and Costello give us, as well as the monsters and the spooky and the set pieces and the design, the production design, just everything works in this film. This is also one of those movies that if I'm stumbling across it while I'm flipping through channels or falling into the YouTube rabbit hole, I'll stop and I'm going to watch the whole thing. I've got it on DVD and Blu-ray, I think twice, because I love this movie so much. Not that I bought the same Blu-ray twice. I just, I bought it on Blu-ray and then somebody else gave it to me. It doesn't matter. I just really enjoy this film. And if I were to consider any of the monster movies that I've seen over the years, a perfect monster movie, this is it. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, 1948. You cannot go wrong. It's timeless. It's funny. It's scary. It's perfect. Tyler, once again, thanks for letting me be part of a Conversation for One podcast. And maybe down the line at some point, you'd like to come on to Monster Kid Radio and be a guest over on my show. Talk to everybody, well, whenever. Ciao.
2: Hi, everyone. My name is Sam Antizana, and I'm thrilled to be here with Tyler on a Conversation for One for this uh, episode of Perfect Horror. Um, I run an Instagram page on the genre, by the way. Uh, called manic horror reviews that's manic underscore horror underscore reviews if any of you care to follow me i'm on there i try to be there uh consistent like weekly at least or twice a week posting reviews um but yeah i get into a lot of deeper cuts i like to think um more subversive and challenging even extreme films um that's just the way i go about it but I I do get into some classics from time to time. Um so please give me a follow there and and comment and start conversations. I love talking to people about the genre. It's what I do. Um and anyways, um getting into perfect horror, I think I think the first uh thing people think of when they think of a perfect horror film is um something that stays with them um an image. Um shower scene in Psycho, the Twins in The Shining, you know, uh, Linda Blair in that crazy makeup in The Exorcist. I think there are a lot of images um, and scenes that people immediately just uh, pick up when thinking about the perfect horror movie. And for me, two of the films that really uh, I think uh, deserve to be called perfect are. Um, angst from 1983 and the last house on dead end street from 1973 and the fir- i want to go into angst a little bit first which is directed by gerald cargill and stars erwin lader um gerald cargill this is his only film which is insane because if you watch this movie um, i feel like you would uh be slightly disappointed afterwards by by knowing how how much thought and really um delicate planning it took into making the film um and how how much finesse went into it how how perfect it is honestly that's why it's on the list um but it's crazy to think it's his only film it's i think it's it's like a one-hit wonder pretty much but um it it follows erwin lader was the serial killer uh released from prison and he's uh walking the streets of germany um Kind of in search of his next victim. Um, because prison hasn't worked on him. Hasn't changed him at all. Uh, it's loosely based off of real-life serial killer, Werner Nisik. Um, so there is a little bit of that element of, oh my gosh, that some of this happened. And um, even if it uh, if, if the movie itself is exaggerated, a lot of what's in the movie is very plausible. Um, and they present it in, in such a way where it's not like, He's killing five hundred different people, and the course of the movie, and not getting caught. It's a lot. It's a lot more, um, personal, disturbingly, um, personal and uh, very close. And even the camera work even is uh, we're with him throughout the entire movie. I think the only times we're not is in the beginning, where there's an establishing shot of a prison that he's in, and once we are uh w- once we find him we're we're with him consistently and the whole movie is uh in real life narration um so pretty much his voice we hear throughout the entire time his thoughts everything he's thinking about him saying things him the way he's feeling about somebody he's looking at he's in the bo- he's in a cafe chewing on a sausage in a really nasty way while looking at two women as if they're his next course so, you know, it's that kind of film. Um, you're almost an accomplice when he's committing any nasty type of uh, crime. Um, going into that a little bit, there are moments of violence that border on the extreme. Um, so, you know, if that isn't your thing, then be careful if you want to watch this movie. But either way, I don't think it's also... I don't. I wouldn't go as far to call it a torture porn film or a splatter film or anything like that. It's a lot more serious and a lot more realistic. Um but it is beautiful in in terms of the way it's shot. Uh, it's it's gorgeous. I think that a lot of the camera movements can be manic, though. they can be frenetic. Um, there is a lot of kinetic movement and, and and camera work throughout these things. I'm not trying to say all those things to rhyme. <laughs> I mean it. Um, if you watch the movie, Gaspar Noah is one of the filmmakers who's very much influenced by uh, this, and you could see it if uh, two of uh, an I Stand Alone and irreversible a lot. And Enter the Void, you can see a little bit of it too. And um, yeah, he he absolutely loves this film and you can see it. If you watch Angst, you can definitely see Gaspar Noé. But um, yeah, that's that's honestly one of my favorite horror films and one of my favorite films, period. If you can handle it, watch it. It is hard to recommend it too because like I said, if you're used to watching something like more fun horror movies or horror comedies or even some slashers, I think some slashers have worse violence than Angst, but I think the 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 way you're so attached to the to the the villain in the movie is what makes it so disturbing and um also memorable. So yeah, Angst, give it a shot and um hey, maybe follow me on Instagram, let me know what you think. <laughs> but anyways, the next movie I want to get into is Last House on Dead End Street, it was made in 1973 by Roger Watkins, who is a very um underrated and under I guess, not well-known director from the 70s and kind of that grindhouse era filmmaking, um, which is very near and dear to my heart. But anyways, Last House on Dead End Street kind of, I think it's overlooked a lot. Not because, not just because it's kind of hard to access, but because of its title. A lot of people probably think that it's a, just one of those Last House on the Left knockoffs or ripoffs, which there were a lot of, to be fair, in in the 70s, but... Um, it's more than that. That was uh just a marketing tactic that they used when they put out the film um for distribution throughout grindhouse theaters and stuff, without even Roger Watkins' knowledge. So, his original title, which I prefer, is called The Cuckoo Clocks of Hell. Um, I I, I love that title. I think it's beautiful. But unfortunately, you know, they gave it that, so that's really what it became uh, known by. Um, and basically, it's about the, uh this social reject who gets out of prison and he's uh, very similar to angst in some ways um, and he's uh, roaming the streets of New York City. He wants to make a film. He wants to leave his mark on film except that film is a snuff film and he goes about doing it in really crazy ways and there's a lot of nightmarish imagery throughout the entire film as soon as like he's getting his Manson-esque followers to you know partake in his films and commit murders and all these other wacky things and um there's there's a lot of bright lights aimed directly at the camera things that are not very traditional forms of filmmaking and maybe that purists who would watch this movie would freak out or cringe over but i i I really dig it because a lot of the techniques he uses or experimental um uh i guess choices he takes are they just they just add to the overall feeling of lunacy throughout the entire thing it really feels like you're watching um a men- a mentally disturbed person's vision um and you're not you're not as close to roger watkins's character um, oh, who by the way, he stars in this movie as the social outcast doing these snuff films. You're not as close to him as you are to Erwin Ledare's character from Angst, but once you see the uh different set pieces of his snuff film um in the movie itself, there is a um kind of pointed angle that you will see directed at some characters who um represent Uh, the porn industry for example which is one thing that Roger Watkins might have been trying to do with this movie which I think elevates the movie above simple exploitation um it still is very nasty in parts and it actually deserves credit for being maybe one of the um pioneers of extreme and also extreme cinema and torture porn for that matter because um not not to say that this movie tops anything coming out of Japan you know in the late 80s and early 90s onwards but I think that this is maybe one of the influencers and um you know I don't I think that without some scenes in this we wouldn't have things like uh grotesque or uh guinea pig flower flesh and blood um and yeah I think it's I think it needs to be watched um, what's very underseen from this uh, like exploitation from the seventies, um, that is instantly recognizable once you watch it, and it will stand out. It's not, it's nowhere near a Last House on the Left ripoff, and I think it, it's in desperate need of a Blu Ray release, which I hope Vinegar Syndrome, which is a wonderful distribution company of exploitation and horror films, I hope that they can put it out someday. There's been rumors of them working on a transfer i hope that can happen soon um unfortunately roger Watkins wasn't able i I wasn't able or didn't want to make um any more horror films after this because most of the other movies he made are just hardcore films um which i am interested in watching but um you know i don't think i think this is probably his masterpiece so um if you can find it definitely watch it um it is it is hard to find a physical copy of it, unfortunately. There's two DVDs, as far as I know. There's one from—well, actually, two legitimate, maybe, DVDs, I should say. There's one from Tartan Grindhouse, which is a um, Tartan video um, sub-releasing uh, line that they made a while ago. That's um, an out-of-print DVD they have, and there's one from Barrel uh, Videos or Barrel Entertainment— um, those two are really hard to find, but if you can find them, grab them and check them out. And if not, if they're somewhere on the internet, you can watch the film, do it. And these are the two films I consider perfect. Um, I feel like I have way more to say, but unfortunately, Tyler won't let me say anything else because this is a timed segment. <laughs> but no, I'm really happy uh, to be on the show and um, please check me out on Instagram. That's Manic Horror Reviews again. Um, I would love to interact and talk to more people about horror and yeah. Hope you guys manage to watch these films. I'm out. Bye. Hey, guys. This is Dylan.
3: And this is Sierra,
2: And we're from the show Horror Haven Podcast,
1: and we're here to talk about films that we consider perfect horror films. So for me, my favorite horror film of all time is The Evil Dead. And the reason I consider this a perfect horror film is just the fact that they did so much with such a little budget. And it's something that I can watch – over and over again and still feel uneasy.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think that the choices that they made with makeup and lighting and everything, it, it's just... I think the fact that they had to come up with all this stuff on a small budget made the, made it creative and it made it unique. Um, the uneasiness, I think, comes from the chaotic atmosphere throughout the movie uh there's just so much going on in this small isolated space and it really makes you feel tense and terrified um, the makeup is absolutely creepy even though you, there are parts obviously where you can see it like falling off mm-hmm. and that it, it's bad makeup it, it never takes me out of it and it's just such a surreal thing and there's Parts with like lighting um one part that i always go to is the part where ash and cheryl are fighting because the bridge is In front out of the headlights and the headlights are shining and uh, again a terrifying part of the movie um when ash drags linda out mm-hmm. and the light is shining through the window on linda as she's like squirming around and laughing it's just such an uneasy feeling and it's something that no matter how many times i watch the movie it just is so unsettling and i think that if a movie is successful enough to make you feel terrified no matter how many times you watch it and you know what's coming and what to expect that to me makes it a perfect horror film
3: i agree I do agree with that, and um, for me, a perfect horror film is going to be, obviously, if you know me, it's going to be Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, I think very similar to what Dylan said about Evil Dead, it had a low budget, um, but they did a lot with that little budget, and they didn't try to go too far with it either with that film. I think that they made it, um, it felt real, you know, like like you could believe that this is a possibility, and, and I think that that's the, the thing that scares me most with horror films, is that is this possible is this real you know mm. um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is probably one of the biggest cult horror films possibly in the world <laughs> um, and uh, I mean Toby Hooper just did amazing with the direction of it and you know it's gritty it's dirty it's hot it's it's what horror should be, and, uh, I mean, it presses the lines of sanity and everything. It's it's just a, a perfect horror film. There's no other ways to, to put it for Texas Chainsaw.
1: I think it's very similar to Evil Dead also, to where they had this low budget, and they had this drive to make it, and you can see the characters, like the actors and actresses, breaking mm-hmm. while Yeah, making, oh, absolutely, while with the dinner scene
3: and all that. Yeah,
1: and-, and it's because they didn't have, you know... Nice, cool hotel rooms and trailers to go chill out when they needed a break. No, they were in, they the, were heat, in the hot
3: Texas sun,
1: shooting for hours and hours mm-hmm. and hours to Absolutely. get this right. And it, again, too, like with Evil Dead, it is very—it's a very chaotic movie, mm-hmm. and it just makes you unsettled because you don't really get a break from the s- insanity. Exactly. And one thing with uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre that I'll add is. I mean, this movie came out, what, 45 years ago, and there's still people to this day that think it's a true story. Oh, yeah. And I I think that if you can make a movie that's so realistic
3: that you believe it, that
1: people to this day still believe it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like what Blair Witch did, Mm -hmm. or, you know, those kinds of movies where cannibal holocaust for example. Yes, um, cannibal
3: holocaust was a good example of that.
1: Yeah, where people believe it's real. Mm-hmm. And if you can believe it's real, that creates a whole nother level of horror, horror because mm-hmm. you know, it could happen.
3: Exactly. I mean, like that's the thing is that there's been there's been killers in in American history that have been cannibals. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So it's it's definitely uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre will forever be a perfect horror film. Yeah,
1: so we're excited to hear what everybody else has to say. Uh, thank you to A Conversation for One podcast for having us to talk about our favorite horror movies.
0: And with that, thank you everybody for listening. Um, it's been a blast. It's been a long time coming. And uh, oh, yeah, I guess I didn't tell you it's not over there's a second episode coming out more perfect horror but with more guests and more picks and you guys are going to love it absolutely love it so look forward to that in the meantime though you can listen to all my past episodes on apple podcasts on stitcher spotify iHeartRadio, radio google play music overcast dog catcher tune in you name it i'm on there please check it out and if you could please it would Mean a lot to me if you guys left a five star rating and maybe a review. I know it's asking a lot, but a five star rating really goes a long way. I think you can do it on Spotify and you can maybe do it on Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts would be preferred. Thank you guys so much. Um, the show was written and produced by me. With special thanks from the folks at 2Cast, from Afro Horror, special guest Bill Couture, Derek M. Cook for Monster Kid Radio, Manic Horror Reviews, and of course, Horror Haven. Thank you so much, guys, and thank you thank you, thank you so much. I honestly I know that you guys have these all ready for me in August, and I appreciate that you sent them out to me, and they're up now, and I thank you so much, and I and I look forward to look, working with you guys in the future. I'll make sure to include links to all those lovely people in the show notes so you guys can check them out. Honestly, they're really great, and I c and I can't recommend them enough. Check them out and uh tell them I said hi. That's about it, guys. You can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at ACFO Podcast. And look forward to the next couple episodes, September and October. I know September is almost over, but these next two months are going to be jam packed. So stay rad, be excellent to each other, and Tyler out.
4: And now, folks, it's time to say good night. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night.